from API. This is Energy Tomorrow Radio, your source for information and conversation about the most important energy issues of the day. Welcome to Energy Tomorrow Radio. I'm Jane Van Ryan. U.S. energy policy is high on the priority list among policymakers in Washington these days. The administration and the congressional leadership are watching the Gulf oil spill and pushing ahead with agenda items that could have a major impact on consumers. To explain what's happening in Washington, Kevin Book of Clearview Energy Partners is with us in the studio today. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Jane. Now, at the outset, I want to tell our listeners that your opinions are strictly your own and do not represent the views of API or the oil and natural gas industry. But Kevin, in your view now, how is the oil spill affecting the ongoing debate about energy policy today? Jane, nothing less than a complete reversal in direction has taken place. In 1980, the process of liberalizing the production of unconventional sources began. In 1995, the deep water got started with a push from the federal government. These resources have become the next frontier, and America's acceptance of those resources had been growing to the point where it was a realistic part of everyone's energy plan to talk about producing onshore and off in places we'd never gone before. With the spill, that all appears to be changing. You mentioned deep water. In the short term, how do you think the six-month moratorium on deep water drilling could affect energy supplies in the United States? Well, the the ironic thing, of course, is that when you have a 6 million barrel surplus of OPEC oil in the world on a daily basis, it's impossible to notice what declines away from beneath you in the Gulf of Mexico. But years from now, it won't be a small thing at all. And the reason is that the non-OPEC growth that the world has been counting on has been coming from these subsalt resources, most pertinently from the ultra-deep water of the Gulf of Mexico. More than half of this year's non-OPEC supply that we were expecting to see will decline out from underneath us with a six-month cessation. And that's a big deal when you look ahead. And over the long term, speaking of looking ahead, there are several other initiatives that are likely to affect energy policy. One of them is the Kerry Lieberman Climate Bill. Have you examined its impact on energy supplies and costs, and what do you think its chances are of being enacted? Well, Jane, I'll take the last question first. Its chances of being enacted without explicit support from Senator Lindsey Graham, one of its original authors, support from coal state Democrats, and something we call political containment of the oil spill, effectively a deal that makes it okay to drill offshore but imposes safety regulations that satisfy pro-environment members. Without those three things, the bill goes nowhere, and frankly, neither does an energy-only bill because it breaks the bank in a time of fiscal strictures. As for what it would do, What it would do would create actually some things that might be good, a needed discipline, a necessary accounting with regard to our energy supply and resources. But what's lacking is an acceptance of what you have to do when you look in the bank and you see that you're short. The problem with the bill isn't that it it creates some compromises industry can support. It actually is one of the most industry-supportive bills that we've seen so far. The problem is that it doesn't address the near-term needs for a rebound in energy demand when America recovers economically. It's essentially like planning to be starving for the rest of your life just because you're short of food right now. Interesting way to put it, Kevin. And of course, at the same time, the administration is supporting the EPA's plan to regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act. That's as though they're holding a gun to the head of Congress in order to try to get something moving on the Hill. How do you think regulating GHGs, as we call them, through the Clean Air Act could affect consumers? 
Well, first and foremost, uh, any regulation that has no ability to differentiate between sources beyond a simple parameter like the amount of emissions on an annual basis doesn't take into account the diversity of inputs or the flexibility of the producer or the ability of that producer to actually move to a different locale. That's a regulation that sounds like it's going to be inefficient almost out of the gate. But we think that the, as a default expectation, Democrats themselves will be the ones blocking stationary source regulation, and it will merely be the CAFE standards that emerged from the original greenhouse gas deal. In the absence of a deal, whether it be on climate or on an energy-only bill, it's not going to be the Murkowski resolution or something like it that undermines the endangerment finding that gave EPA that authority, but rather Democrats looking back at the home district as the November polls approach and saying, wow, we don't want to be blamed for this. Do you think that that uh, then could make it more feasible that Senator Rockefeller's uh, proposal could be enacted? As you may know, Senator Rockefeller is looking for a two-year de delay that would at least give Congress time to act on climate change. Well, we think actually that uh, Senator Kerry had one thing right, that in terms of the economic and political makeup of the country right now, this probably was the climate bill's last best chance. We do expect to see the Rockefeller proposal go through or something like it, whether it be a one or two year pause. And what we expect to see as a, as a realistic measure, potentially in 2011 or 20, 2012, would not be the, the nature of a comprehensive bill, the likes of which Kerry Lieberman embodies, but something more like a utility-only stationary source regulation that might pair natural gas demand incentives with it. There's not enough economic motivation when the economy's strong and energy prices are rising. Nobody's going to make the trade that Kerry Lieberman would have imposed. On a very different topic now, Congress is considering changes to the oil spill liability trust fund that could remove the cap on damage claims. If that cap is removed entirely, making companies liable for unlimited damages, how do you think the U.S. oil and natural gas supplies could be affected? Well, it's easy to look at it in broad brushstrokes. 30% of our oil comes from the, the Gulf of Mexico right now, our domestically produced oil, that is, and 80% of it comes from the deep water. The deep water is where these high-pressure, frankly, high-profit wells are the frontier that has allowed the United States to grow its supply for the first time since the 1970s. If you take, uh, say, a 2% of total damages premium, and you expect that to be essentially the price you would pay to insure a well, and you go to, say, just a modest increase, uh, that is to say, modest relative to the no-cap increase, $1.5 billion, you've taken a $100 million enterprise and imposed a $30 million surcharge on top of it. Can companies handle that? Some can, but not the small ones. Uh, if you go all the way up to $10 billion, you've now driven all but essentially the super majors out of the Gulf of Mexico. And take away the $10 billion cap, no one at the corporate board level ever supports the idea of unlimited liability. So you'll find that the companies don't produce here. They'll produce in another subsalt region, Brazil, Australia, Indonesia, and that part of the economic value chain, the most profitable part, will go to another country and will still be buying oil from overseas. Absolutely, because we would be making, uh, be producing less oil and natural gas here. It's, it's a reasonable expectation that we're going to have at least the same electric power demand for many years to come. And though petroleum distillates for, for light-duty vehicles might be flattening and, and tapering off, there's absolutely no expectation that we'll see a fall in the middle distillates that we use for, for freight and for, for trade. Now, separately, the president is also pushing for tax hikes on the oil and natural gas industry. Again, how could increased taxes affect energy supplies? 
Well, this again goes back to the diversity of supply rather than necessarily the true economics of supply. Uh, what is underappreciated by, I think, a lot of the, the folks who support this proposal is that they're looking at tax policies that have been on the books in some cases since the 19th century. Uh, the use of last-in, first-out accounting for refiners' inventories goes back to 1939. There are opportunistic ways in which multinational corporations will always behave to outthink a slow-moving federal bureaucracy. And so the unintended consequences of doing this is probably less revenue for the federal government, in spite of the fact that you have a one-time bump, because you'll lose the royalty stream that you're getting right now, and you'll lose the taxes that you're getting right now as these companies move overseas. And in the meantime, what you have is an, an accounting trick. Jane, if I could, if I go to a restaurant and I say, I would like a free meal because I saved the cost of the meal by not staying in a hotel, I'm going to get thrown out on the street. Only in Congress is it possible to count money that hasn't yet been obligated as a savings when you've decided not to use it. Uh, this is the sort of faulty accounting that unfortunately creates a lot of challenges from a deficit management perspective. But in the corporate cash-driven world, it's not a question. If this changes, you produce elsewhere. Excellent point. Recently, and you're talking about accounting, so this immediately comes to mind because there are a lot of people along the Gulf Coast that are just trying to figure out their own budgets at the moment. They've been hit by the oil spill. They're now being hit by the moratorium, which is clearly going to have an effect on energy workers if it continues. And the New York Times, just a few days ago, produced a video showing the personal impact on those offshore rig workers because of the moratorium. Many have already been told that they could lose their jobs or that their jobs are going to be shipped overseas, perhaps to Brazil or somewhere else. And one of them wondered if they were being punished personally as a result of the tragic accident in the Gulf of Mexico? That's a pretty legitimate question, Kevin. Do you agree that it appears that the entire industry is being punished as a result of the Deepwater Horizon accident? I think, Jane, it's important to get into sort of the, the broader economics and, and the psychology of Congress, for that matter, the administration in the wake of this accident. If you look at the Massey uh, Upper Big Branch mine incident earlier in April, it has produced not a sweeping requirement that coal mining stop, but a very site-specific response. There are still ongoing inquiries and investigations, and there are questions about bad actors potentially within the industry that haven't followed the regulator's requirements. But what hasn't happened is that coal hasn't been shut down, and the reason is that the perception is that only the direct value chain, the folks who willingly entered into the risk proposition of mining, were harmed. Congress tends to get very, very antsy about who could be hurt in the wake of an accident like this one. What they're not counting in that equation, and neither apparently is the administration, are the people who are also being hurt. What they've done is they've spared hundreds of thousands of people outside the direct value chain from the ongoing infinitesimal risk of another spill, and they have directly harmed tens of thousands of people within the value chain. That is not necessarily a net social gain. Kevin Book. Good point. Thank you so much for joining us today on Energy Tomorrow Radio. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on Energy Tomorrow Radio, brought to you by the people of America's oil and natural gas industry. For more information about this podcast or to submit questions for future shows, visit energytomorrow.org. That's energytomorrow.org.